Welcome, everyone, uh, to the kickoff event for the Spring 2013 CMS Colloquium. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, it's going to be my honor, it's my honor to uh, introduce Marcella, but I have a, just a brief announcement. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm Ian Condry. Uh, I'm a CMS professor here uh, and also in foreign languages and literatures. Um, and uh, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm here to welcome you, and I'll, I'll introduce Marcella and also I'll do a little bit of moderating of the discussion. I hope we have a, a broad and wide-ranging uh, debate after the talk. Before I introduce Marcella, however, I have one announcement, uh, which is that uh, Foreign Languages and Literatures is doing a search right now uh, for a new assistant professor. And uh, we have four speakers coming in, all in French studies. Uh, but several of them, or most of them, in fact, uh, have connections to media studies uh, in one form or another. Uh, and so uh, we're looking at this uh, higher in foreign languages uh, as a, a chance, of course, to boost up French studies uh, in foreign languages and literatures, uh, but also as a chance to build connections to other departments, including uh, CMS. So uh, if you have time, uh, the talks will be starting tomorrow, uh, and then we'll continue Monday, Tuesday, and Friday next week. Normally the talks are 5 uh, to 6.30 p.m. Um, there, you, there should be an email there. It's also gone out to all of Shas' uh, faculty. Um, but if you don't know about it and you didn't get an email, just let me know, and I'm happy to let you know. Uh, the one difference is, though, tomorrow, given the blizzard uh, that is bearing down, allegedly, on our fair state, uh, we're going to do the talk earlier. So the talk will be noon tomorrow. Uh, and the talk is by a woman named Catherine Clark. Uh, it's Friday, February 8th, noon. Uh, and the room is 14N225. So if you're writing that down, 14N225. Uh, it's the building 14, uh, not too far from here. Uh, and her talk is on the visual history in the photographic age uh, the 1944 Liberation of Paris. She's an expert on photography uh, and history and looking at the way photographs uh, give a nice way entree into the debates within history of whether history should be uh, access to the emotional and affective world of the past or uh, objective scientific investigation of what happened. Uh, that both photographs and history wrestle with that problem. So it should be a fascinating talk. Noon tomorrow, if you can come, that'd be great. Uh, and there's also three more candidates coming next week. So please, uh, please join it. You're welcome. And we'd love to have your uh, presence and participation in the Q&A. Yes, that will still go on. And, and so, yes, we're, we're still after the talk. We were planning for that, to, right, the talk to come after that. But there will be a meeting. So with the CMS graduate students, uh, if you can make it, that would be great uh, to meet the candidate and have a discussion with her. At what time is that? 3.15. Yes, schedule, that part of the schedule is still the same. So 3.15 in the CMS area? Jim, in Jim's corner office. Okay? Good. Yes. <laughs> We're setting up a desk for you in the bathroom. Is that cool? It's private, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, good. Uh, other announcements should be done? It's all good? Okay. Uh, let me get my uh, introduction here. Uh, so, without further ado, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Marcella Sablovich. She is a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Comparative Media Studies. She just started uh, in the fall, and she'll be here for two years. She's teaching courses here, uh, as well as working on her research. Uh, she received her Ph.D. 
from the Department of Communication and Media at uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, and she has an MA in East Asian Studies from Duke University as well. Uh, as you can see, as you know, uh, her research is on youth and digital media in urban China. Uh, she has a publication in the Rutledge volume titled Online Society in China, uh, and she also has an essay in the Chinese Journal of Communication. Uh, her dissertation uh, is being turned into a book. Uh, the title for right now is called uh, From Addicts to Athletes. Youth Mobilities and the Politics of Digital Gaming in Urban China. Uh, and it's based on ethnographic fieldwork uh, uh, primarily in Shanghai, I believe, and uh, it's been supported by Fulbright and the National Science Foundation. Um, and we'll learn, I, I can tell you things it's about, but we'll learn that as well. Uh, I just wanted to highlight sort of one interesting aspect uh, of her dissertation and of Marcella's work more generally. Uh, and I think it's an idea or an issue that faces a lot of us researchers uh, in media as well, and it's a question of method. Uh, a question of method, especially when we're interested in ethnography, uh, an ethnography of phenomena uh, that don't have a single place, uh, a single community. I mean, there was a time when Malinowski uh, could go and live among the, the, small, the villagers uh, and, and get enough information. Uh, about a culture from living in a single place, and that was sort of the emergence of fieldwork and participant observation. Uh, but as, uh, as Marcella notes um, uh, in her dissertation, uh, quoting an anthropologist, she says, you know, one of the tenets of anthropological fieldwork is that you cannot understand a people without being there. Uh, but in the case of digital gaming, where is there? Uh, and it's a kind of interesting question, um, and, and as, as Marcella says, and let me quote, uh, when I first arrived in Shanghai, I could not shake the feeling that my field site was both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And so one of the strategies, uh, and we'll be hearing more of the outcome of this kind of, of research, but one of the strategies Marcella took uh, was to think of fieldwork not in terms of a particular place, uh, even as a virtual place, uh, or, or even as a particular kind of artifact that you study a certain kind of cultural object, uh, but rather to think in terms of a situation. Uh, that it's a kind of situational uh, rather than locational uh, anthropology. I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, uh, uh, it leaves a messy picture in some ways, but ethnography often results in kind of messy pictures, and social life itself uh, has a messy side of it. Uh, but what this strategy leads to, uh, and again, I'm quoting from Marcella's work here, uh, an, an approach that turns the lens outward uh, to look at the ways in which non-gamers are framing digital games and in turn to understand the ways in which these representations and attitudes uh, refract back into gamer communities and their subjectivities. Uh, and in this sense, she says, I found it useful to think of digital games as both a place and an artifact of culture. Uh, so it seems to me there's a lot we can learn uh, from Marcella's work in thinking about method and thinking about games and thinking about China. Uh, and without further ado, let's hear those things. Please join me in welcoming Marcella Sablovich. Okay, well, 
Thank you, Ian, for that lovely introduction. And um, thank you all for coming today. It's really a pleasure to have this opportunity to share some of my research with you. And I should note also that some of what I'm going to talk about today is new material that I'm working on as we speak. Um, so it's a slight departure from this addicts to athletes theme, although I think you'll also see that come out a little bit in what I'm going to talk about. So let me just get this back in order here. Uh, let's see. I'm experimenting with Prezi, um, which seems to be experimenting with me at the moment. Um, let's just go back into it. There we go. We got it back. Okay. So my talk today was partially inspired by a trip I took to the World Cyber Games in Qinshan, China this past November. And for those of you who don't know, the World Cyber Games is a professional esports competition that styles itself as the Olympics of esports. And esports is a form of competitive digital gaming, with players competing in various genres of digital games, both one on one and in teams. And to offer a sense of the impressive scale of the four day event, there were over 110,000 spectators and reported 85 million online views. The competition was housed in two giant 40,000 square foot exhibition halls with one main stage in each. And in all, 500 competitors came from 40 different countries to compete against one another. Now, to most foreigners in the audience, the third place match for Warcraft 3 was far from the most exciting event in the World Cyber Games. The game is actually already 10 years old, nearly ancient in the lifespan of a popular computer game. And the third place winner would only draw in $1,000, which is a really, really low prize. Um, in fact, it was the lowest prize in the entire tournament. But as you can see from this picture, the Chinese fans could care less. This is the scene uh, preceding the Warcraft 3 third place match. So to them, this match was likely to be the final match between two Warcraft 3 legends, China's human king, Sky, and the Korean night elf king, Moon. And indeed, so important were these two that they had actually set up the entire competition in the inaugural match. And they faced off during this inaugural match, and during that match, Moon, the Korean gamer, had won. And now Chinese fans were eagerly awaiting um, the outcome to see if Sky could avenge his loss in the opener and take the third place title. Now, why was this match so important? Well, many young Chinese born in the 80s and 90s grew up playing Warcraft 3 in internet cafes. And Sky had made the game famous, having become the first Chinese gamer ever to win the World Cyber Games. He was an international esports professional in a country in which many parents, teachers, and officials viewed gaming as a waste of time. And this was perhaps the last time that Warcraft 3 would ever be selected in official WCG competition. It was truly the end of an era. Now, this spectacle, as you can see, was really incredible. And actually, um, the soundtrack um, was this 
hard rock song, Linkin Park's Wretches and Kings, surging over the loudspeakers, and fans are excitedly awaiting the entrance of their hero. But then suddenly he's announced, and the mood just shifts drastically. Linkin Park's Wretches and Kings becomes Paul Anka's I Did It My Way, <laughs> immortalized by none other than Frank Sinatra, of course. Now, <laughs> um, reinforcing this instant swell of nostalgia that's brought about by this emotional song, um, we can see up here they had these two large screens on either side of the stage that showed um, Twitter feeds, um, not Twitter, but the Chinese version of Twitter, and what fans were writing on them. And we saw messages that proclaimed things like, Warcraft 3, a beautiful memory of my youth. Today I bid farewell to my youth. And in many people's eyes, Warcraft 3 is not merely a classic game, but a memento of youth, a kind of spiritual sustenance. So while these messages flashed on the side screens, the large screen in the center showed close-ups of sky, looking determined, and these fans waving Chinese flags and signs of support for their hero. So I'm going to return to this scene of nostalgia a bit later, but for now, suffice it to say that it was, for me, a fitting culmination of years spent researching youth and digital media um, and digital games in urban China. I first became interested in the subject of internet culture and internet cafes as an undergraduate uh, studying abroad in Harbin in 2002. And I have since uh, traced digital game culture over the years through media and government discourse but also through the lives of a number of young people who play games. Now, the bulk of my fieldwork was conducted over a course of a summer spent in Shanghai in 2004, and then a year of intensive fieldwork in Shanghai in 2009. And I have also since returned to Shanghai during the summer of 2012, and then again this past November. In all, um, I've interviewed close to 70 individuals many multiple times, over the course of a number of years. And during these interviews, I've really attempted to collect oral histories of the evolution of young individuals' experiences with digital games from their first memory of playing games to and sometimes beyond when they actually might stop playing them altogether. And what I have found is that whether or not people continue to play games into their 20s and 30s, many remain nostalgic uh, for time spent in internet cafes or dormitories playing games with friends. And so the question I, I really want to pose today is what are the, the implications of this nostalgia? So to frame this discussion, um, let me offer the following quotation from Svetlana Boyam, who's written extensively about nostalgia in post-Soviet Russia. Um, she writes, quote, Nostalgia itself has a utopian dimension, only it is no longer directed toward the future. Sometimes nostalgia is not directed towards the past either, but rather sideways. In fact, nostalgics from all over the world would find it difficult to say what exactly they yearn for. Saint elsewhere, another time, a better life. And in counterpart to our fascination with cyberspace and the virtual global village, there is a no less global epidemic of nostalgia, an effective yearning for continuity, um, sorry, continuity uh, 
within, uh, sorry, yearning for community with a collective memory and a longing for continuity in a fragmented world. Nostalgia inevitably reappears as a defense mechanism in a time of accelerated rhythms of life and historical upheavals. Now, I realize this is a, a fairly extensive quote, and there is a lot, certainly, to take away from this quotation. Um, first of all is this understanding of nostalgia as being more about present anxieties than it is about the past. And what is more, there's a suggestion that nostalgia also involves a certain amount of distortion or fantasy, right? And this is what Boyne means when she says that nostalgia has this utopian element that is directed sideways, um, this, this directing our longings at a saint elsewhere. Finally, what of this claim that there is a global epidemic of nostalgia? <laughs> well, many scholars have actually commented on the way that the internet makes the archiving and reliving of memories possible. For example, a New York Times article a couple of years ago focused on my own generation's nostalgia for the Nickelodeon shows that we grew up with. And the author asked, quote, are 18 to 34-year-olds too young to be nostalgic? He goes on to suggest that a great deal of this nostalgia has to do with the fact that we can now simply just Google any memory. And with regard to China, a scholar, Feng Shu Liu, has similarly commented on the proliferation of blogs and bulletin board systems devoted to young people's memories of the objects and the media that they encountered growing up. And she suggests that the accelerated collective remembering of young people born in the 80s and 90s, quote, serves as an emotional support in an era of rapid social transformation where pressure and uncertainty prevail. So today, I want to explore this nature of young people's emotional attachment to digital games, but doing so, I feel, requires that we take a broad view of games' past involvement in young people's lives, as well as the nature of the desires and fantasies that they continue to cultivate and sustain. So, let me offer some context here, which is that the youth that were born in 1980s and 1990s China are truly a unique generation. They're the first generation, first of all, to grow up after the death of Mao, and they're also the first to grow up amid a bevy of economic and social reforms. Now, many are probably familiar already with the one-child policy, which was instituted in 1979. Importantly, this policy places an emphasis on population quality over quantity. And as noted by the scholar Vanessa Fung, the policy was conceived of as a plan to institute a cultural model of modernization that would lead to a generation of young people with resources and ambition to join the global elite. And the idea was that families with one child could invest more in that one child's future. But in practice, what it meant is that those only children were burdened with the hopes and expectations of their entire family. If we add to this now what we see in this picture, which is the intense pressure to prepare for the college entrance exam. And the college entrance exam in China is the sole factor that determines a young person's ability to attend college. And so as such, in schools in China, there's a great deal of emphasis placed on test prep, and there's little to no emphasis on extracurricular activities. 
And I would argue that this combination of the one-child policy and the high stakes of the college entrance exam creates an environment in which young people face extreme pressure, but also a very narrow definition of what success entails. Okay. So it is in this, this high-pressure extracurricular vacuum that many of the young people I worked with first encountered internet gaming and internet cafes. And as such, many of the college students I spoke to in 2009 affiliated the Internet Cafe with this transitional period between middle school and college when their future was yet to be determined by the results of the college entrance exam. And for some young people, they conceived of the Internet Cafe as a kind of rebellion, right, of rebellion against their parents and also a way of, of releasing the pressure of school and enjoying an exciting social atmosphere. For example, one young man said, um, talked about the importance of going to the internet cafe with friends. And he said, you know, you wouldn't go call someone else or go to the internet cafe, cafe alone. Quote, everyone has to decide as a group and then go together. It was always like this. A single person would rarely go to the internet cafe because if you go alone, you don't know what to do. And then one young woman talked about um, the way in which they created fake IDs to get into the internet cafes. And it's important to note that internet cafes do have restrictions against allowing minors um, to go into them. And so these young people, like this young woman, would create fake IDs. It's very much like I always uh, make the analogy of young people in America um, trying to get into bars when they're underage. It's a sense of rebellion, and it's a sense of doing something that's not quite permitted, right? Um, so today I, I don't have a chance to go into great depth about young people's experiences in internet cafes, but I think that these reminiscences that I've shared so far can help to establish the fact that many young people I spoke, for many young people I spoke with, these internet cafes were a central part of their coming of age. But what I have here on the screen, of course, is an internet cafe that's been shut down. And this, of course, shows the speed with which technological change is happening in China and also the way in which the experience of going to the Internet Cafe that was so integral for many of these young people born in the 80s and 90s is an experience that's not likely to be shared by many future generations of young Chinese growing up in urban Shanghai. So, importantly, I also found that understandings of the experience of gaming and what gaming meant diverged later in life and in relation to young people's shifting social positions. So where games might once have been considered a sort of petty rebellion or release from the pressure of everyday life, I found that they eventually became incorporated into narratives of productivity and upward socioeconomic mobility, or importantly, the lack thereof. Anthropologists such as Vanessa Fong, uh, Lisa Hoffman, and Andrew Kipnis have discussed the manner in which members of the one-child generation have struggled to adjust to the, this lack of promising job prospects that faces many young people today post-graduation. And Fung, for example, noted that many young people found, quote, incongruities between the status they expected and the status they attained as a major source of stress. And this source of stress, this notion of the incongruity, 
incongruities between the status that people are attaining and um, the status that's expected is very much rooted in the intense pressure leading up to the college entrance exam and the intense pressure that's placed upon young people um, to succeed. Um, and, you know, I have seen this also in my own research as a number of the young people I spoke to found that upon graduating from college, they felt that they couldn't find a job with appropriate chiantu um, or future prospects. They just couldn't find a job that fulfilled their expectations. So, indeed, this, this very situation is depicted quite convincingly in a 2011 online film um, called We Grew Up Playing. And We Grew Up Playing, or Wan Dada, uh, tells the story of two teenage boys, uh, Dunze and Yan Jing, who spend all their time in arcades playing the game King of Fighters. And together, they get into all kinds of mischief, trying to scrounge up money uh, to play games in the gaming hall. And, you know, even though they're bullied by thugs and yelled at by their parents for going into these arcades, the youthful optimism of their teenage years is quite evident. And each tries to outdo the other. Um, and they ultimately, they challenge each other to what will be this ultimate duel to determine who will be the king of fighters. But quite tragically, before they can realize their dream of staging this ultimate match, Yan Jing's family relocates to the city. And Dunza and Yan Jing are separated, having never managed to realize this final duel. Now, cut to the future, and Dunza has become a manager of a small video game store, while Yan Jing has been initiated, initiated into a life of a corporate middleman. And it's very clear that adult life is a disappointing drudgery where hope and success seem ever elusive. And while childhood was marked by fantasy and rebellion and dreams of entrepreneurial success, the scenes that depict Junza and Yanjing as adults reveal how these idealistic youth have been forced to abandon their dreams. Now, by chance, uh, the two run into each other and rekindle their friendship over drinks. And uh, they determine that the only thing to be done is to try and realize this childhood dream of having this ultimate duel in King of Fighters. Um, but having searched all the arcades and internet cafes, they can't find this game anymore because it just simply isn't around. So ultimately, they decide they're going to recapture their youth by downloading the game onto a computer console and then building the arcade console out of wood surrounding the screen. And so the suggestion in this film is clearly the notion that the redemption for these young adults who've lost all hope, can, that the idea is that they can regain this sense of hope by going back to these childhood experiences that have been left behind. Um, now, as it turns out, uh, We Grew Up Playing was actually a marketing ploy to promote a new massively multiplayer online role-playing game uh, called Chengtu 2. And um, this is quite funny, actually, because they're trying to market a massively multiplayer online role-playing game to young people who are nostalgic for old arcade-style um, fighting games. But the director of the film um, wrote a note uh, where he said, Today we are the ones making games, but in the past we all played them too. And everyone has this string of tales. 
We have named ourselves the generation that grew up playing. And making this film was sentimental and tearful as it is closely related to our own memories and our own passion. And we hope that these scenes of childhood will bring out memories that are buried in the bottom of your heart. And today, even though you may find it hard to recapture the happiness of those years, give thanks to those people who created those classic games for us to play, and now we can only hope that we ourselves can become those kinds of people. Um, so we, we Grew Up Playing is quite obviously an attempt to capitalize on the nostalgia of the post-80s generation by suggesting that somehow youthful happiness and hopefulness is to be found in a return to games, um, hopefully the return to the game that they want you to play, right? Um, but whether or not it's a marketing ploy, I think that also it is obvious from comments that were posted beneath the video um, and even from the comment of the director himself, is that the story told by this movie does resonate strongly with many young people. Um, but what about this nostalgia that I opened with uh, that was on, vividly on display at the World Cyber Games? <clears throat> well, in part, I would argue that the nostalgia that surrounded Sky's final match issues uh, from a similar place as that of the young men depicted in We Grew Up Playing. Warcraft 3 is, like King of Fighters, one of those classics games that's becoming more and more obsolete. But the frenzy at World Cyber Games uh, was also about something else. Um, it was about the figure of Sky himself. This is his autobiography here. And the notion that Sky is a kid like them who made it to greatness. He's, you know, the first professional esports player to achieve fame, and as such, he was really idolized as an example of the exceptionalism to which many of these young people aspired. Now, whether or not the young people who played games such as Warcraft 3 aspired to play them professionally, and I should note that most of them actually didn't, um, they were often heavily invested in a notion that the games were esports, and that because they were esports, they were therefore a healthy form of gaming. And for example, some of the college students that I met uh, would talk about esports and filter them through a narrative of skill building, strategic thinking, and individual competition. And in other words, so when they spoke to me of Warcraft 3, um, they would speak about how these games would actually give them skills that they needed um, to advance in the real world. And I should note that these kinds of narratives were, were not unique to the students. And in fact, I don't think that they were even original to the students, but they rather reflected a dominant discourse that had been promoted by the government and the media, which was trying to valorize certain types of play, e-sports, as having real-world value. And this dominant discourse of healthy versus unhealthy gaming, which I actually talk about at length in my uh, dissertation and other areas, um, this, this dominant discourse is so overpowering that my discussions with young people who played Warcraft 3, um, they would often make this concerted effort to separate their style of gaming from the unhealthy gaming habits of massively multiplayer online role-playing games. And so one um, young man I work with, for example, he had the opportunity to meet Sky. And in this meeting, he drilled Sky about the kinds of practice strategies that he used. And, you know, 
what he felt the cornerstone of his success in esports has been. And when I talked to him afterward about, you know, why he asked these questions, he said, well, yeah, I really don't care about what strategy is going on in the game, but I care about finding out exactly why Sky managed to be so successful, because he's just an idol to me because he's a model of success. And <clears throat> another person, here's a, a fan who wrote a note to Sky after the World Cyber Games. Um, he, he wrote this note and he's lamenting the fact that wor the World Cyber Games is likely to cut Warcraft 3 from the future lineup. He says, quote, you have been burdened by the overwhelming expectations of your fans. You have carried their dreams, but you never stopped there. Now, even if you're willing to pay the price, even if you're willing to persevere, even if you expect nothing in return, you have no arena in which to fight. There is such love and affection in Warcraft 3. The hearts of your fans are breaking, not to mention your own. So, um, again, I just want to re refer back to this uh, picture on the screen. Uh, Sky's autobiograph autobiography came out this summer, and actually there's this little blurb at the bottom is really an advertisement. And one of the things that it claims is that before he was Sky, he was a bad kid, slurping noodles in the internet cafe, a disgrace to his father. But after he became Sky, he was a world champion, the idol of millions. And so again, this is, you know, reinforcing this notion of this, you know, possibility of this upward socioeconomic mobility through the game. So I have one final example that I'd like to share with you today. And this is a slightly different one that stretches the concept of what we mean by nostalgia into that sideways direction mentioned by Svetlana Boyum in the opening. And this example has to do with young people who are currently playing massively multiplayer online role-playing games who are not so much nostalgic for their past as they are desirous of a saint elsewhere, another time, another place. And as such, I, I refer to this kind of um, longing as a sideways nostalgia, or perhaps more appropriately, a sideways mobility. And let me start with some examples of what I mean by this, and then I'll get to this example of War of Internet Addiction. So one young woman talked to me about the ability to go sightseeing in the game. And she actually talked about how she and her friends would go into the game and take screenshots of their avatars posed in front of beautiful scenery. And she talked about how this gave this simulated sense of mobility, of movement, of actual travel. And another young man who did not attend college talked of the game more in terms of socioeconomic mobility. And he said, quote, so maybe your real, life, <clears throat> your real life is not how you imagined it to be. Take, for example, a boy who's not very good looking. He isn't anyone extraordinary and he doesn't have much money. But after he plays the game, he can pretend. He can forget the jokes others tell about him in real life, completely forget all the things he is unsatisfied with. And this imaginary space gives me some satisfaction. So many of these kinds of sentiments about both physical mobility and socioeconomic mobility were echoed in this hour-long film, War of Internet Addiction. And this was released to video sharing sites in 2010. And it was wildly successful. It garnered millions of views in a matter of just days. Um, 
it is a hour-long machinima, which is an animated movie uh, using the game engine, that tells the World of Warcraft gamers' struggle to save their beloved game from government controls and internet addiction experts who seek to destroy it. And the narrative is quite intricate, referencing government censorship and the issues surrounding the licensing and operation of World of Warcraft. Um, it's a pop cultural mashup. It references Chinese television shows, movies, viral videos, and American icons and films. In fact, it's based on the storyline of Terminator 2. Um, but while critiquing the ways in which the government and internet addiction specialists have attempted to infringe upon the right of gamers to enjoy their game, War of Internet Addiction also makes a passionate emotional appeal to its viewers. So, to begin, the space in World of Warcraft, Azeroth, is referred to as a spiritual homeland, evoking this sense that the game world is actually the site of emotional sustenance that is lacking in their physical homeland. And <clears throat> the restrictions, this is a map of Azeroth, the restrictions placed upon the game expansion pack um, by the government who doesn't want to allow the new expansion to be released are envisioned as yet another way in which mobility is restricted. And there's a quote here from the protagonist of the film. He says, This year, each time we arrived at Undercity, we would see the empty Zeppelin Tower across from us. This year, even though we knew it was impossible, we swam northward, ignoring fatigue, swam to the edge of the map, swam to the edge of the sea, but we could not see that frozen land. And so what they're referring to, of course, is that fact that the expansion hasn't been opened up, so they really can't get to this new land. But the fact of the matter is they also go on to compare this restricted in-game mobility to the way in which China's residence permit system restricts internal migration. And it says, the protagonist says, quote, you've already made me a temporary resident in my own country. Is it any wonder that in our spiritual homeland we are not even permitted temporary residents? So it's really quite a biting critique of the Chinese government policy as, as in addition to being this sort of utopian nostalgic longing about the game. And finally, uh, the protagonist moves on to the subject of socioeconomic mobility and references this notion of the drudgery of most gamers' real lives. He says, This past year, we, like other World of Warcraft lovers, have earnestly taken public transportation to work, earnestly consumed all kinds of goods, no matter what unknown chemicals they contain. We didn't complain because of our low wages, didn't complain because you took taxes, we lived in these cramped apartments despite our feeling of despair. And I just offer, want to offer one last quote, which comes from the director of this film, who is himself a World of Warcraft gamer. And the movie was actually, unlike the other film that I referenced, was put together um, by all World, uh, World of Warcraft gamers. And he said, quote, The 80s generation is the generation that has grown up playing games. World of Warcraft is a high-quality internet game, and what is more, the fees for it are very low. In this day and age of growing pressures, we choose to play games because of our feelings of helplessness with regard to our real economic power. Try to imagine, if I had money to travel and surf, why would I shut myself at home in front of a computer to play games? Because the vast majority of youth living in today's world of high rents and low wages don't have that ability.
Okay. So um, I was thinking about showing a short clip from uh, War of Internet Addiction. Yeah, we have time. All right. Let me see if I can get this to queue up properly. Oh, no, go back. They're trying to cure internet addiction. And this is the speech that I just quoted. Can you read it? Can you read it? Can you read it? Can you Tianjiao 这一年里，我们每次点前服都会想着什么时候能在多时点。这一年里，我们每次到幽暗都有朋友对面那座永远没有飞艇停靠的塔楼。这一年里，我们明知不可能却仍不知疲倦向北极游过去，直到地图的边
is also a form of cruel optimism. And on one hand, you see how this intense investment in education as the sole source of success is harmful to young people because it allows for this very narrow and, and oftentimes unrealistic notion of what success entails. And the question is whether or not games can offer an alternative fantasy or whether the fantasies that are fostered by the games themselves are also cruelly optimistic encouraging young people to attach themselves emotionally to an object that is fleeting or a vision of success that is ultimately unsustainable. So in certain cases, I would say that games do serve as a conduit for such cruelly optimistic fantasies. And this is something that we see clearly in the way that young people idolize Sky, for example, as, as an example of success, because they're attaching hopes to a vision of exceptionalism that extreme, is extremely rare and hard to achieve so there's only one Sky out there, right, who actually managed to become successful playing these games. Um, similarly, uh, the film We Grew Up Playing seems to encourage a return to the scene of childhood fantasies that are ultimately unsustainable. And I think that the tendency to romanticize the experience of playing games and to figure games as a utopia is also undeniably problematic. But I think that I would also suggest that there is a sense in which games might also offer an alternative vision of mobility that can actually serve as a critique of what is missing from the here and now. And I think we see that in War of Internet Addiction because for all of this discussion of the spiritual homeland, it's less about presenting a vision of game as utopia than it is about offering a critique of the government and the lack of opportunities for many young Chinese citizens. So that is my talk for today. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Why don't, here, why don't you come sit up here and we'll have our discussion. Okay. Uh, side that way. Sure. Um, now, I know normally we, we pass around a microphone, but uh, in the interest of having a more open discussion, uh, we're going to dispense with the microphone. Uh, we'll take some questions. And, uh, and, and allow people to also to respond to each other. So uh, I have my questions, but I'll, I'll wait and uh, see what people have to uh, contribute, please. And, we, and please introduce yourself, too, so Marcella knows. Hi, I'm, my name is Xinghua Li, and um, I teach media studies at Batson College, and I'm from Shanghai. A lot of the presentation um, mm -hmm. of your, your slides, they just evoke nostalgia. <laughs> I really like your presentation. Thank you. So um, I'm, I'm watching this and see how much of this nostalgia you're describing is uniquely Chinese and how much is it can be found in the U.S. And uh, um, I think the nostalgia can be seen in U.S. gaming culture as well. I don't know if you know this 2012 movie, A Wreck-It Ralph, mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, kind of uh, putting all the, um, the uh, historical uh, uh, characters of video games and together and put them all together so uh, when you look back and see how far we have gone from the very basic simplest video game to how you know the developed one nowadays and then I thought how unique is this nostalgia to um, video games or just to technology in general because in, in China people have had expressed uh, you know um, nostalgia to like the first like uh, gigantic cell phones, you know, like, or, you know, all the, the oldest technology that we have 
um, you know, used and lived with before became an object of nostalgia. So maybe I'm wondering how much of this unique to Chinese um, video game culture, or is just embedded in technological history in general? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for your question, and um, you know. I agree. I think, you know, the reason I, I chose to open um, with this notion of the global epidemic of nostalgia is that, you know, this is something that we see everywhere, right? And this notion that people like myself are nostalgic for Nickelodeon television shows, I don't think I particularly am, but the <laughs> what the New York Times article is claiming is, you know, that the idea that because of the internet, because of the ability to Google everything, you know, all memories of technology are at our fingertips, you know, and it's there, and it, it always evokes the sense of nostalgia. So I, I agree. I think that it's not necessarily unique to China, um, you know. And but what I'm looking at here with with China is I do think that there are um, unique circumstances pertaining to things such as the college entrance exam and the intense pressures faced by, you know, only children that uh, filter the nostalgia in a certain way to make it center upon these notions of, you know, socioeconomic mobility and issues of physical mobility, sense of, you know, the hukou and the resident permit and things like that. I feel like these are things that are particular to the cultural context from which they're emerging. Mm -hmm. Can people hear the questions in the back or no? Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering uh, whether female uh, players uh, share the same kind of discourse uh, mm -hmm. of nostalgia. That's one. And then uh, to factor the class question into the discourse, uh, it, it, well, it seems to me that the people whom you cited who were playing came from the uh, lower social strata. What about uh, youth? Um, that came from well-off families. Do they share the same discourse? And mm -hmm. yeah, so in other words, factoring the, the gender and class question right. to the Right. OK. Thank you. Um, in terms of uh, the female players, some of the people I quoted today actually were female. Um, the one uh, person who talked about taking pictures inside the space of the game with her friends and avatars, she was uh, <laughs> female. And um, then uh, one of the Warcraft 3 gamers that I work with is also female. But I think you are right to point out the gender issue because this is um, I mean, if you saw the picture in the beginning, the sea of fans at the Warcraft 3 competition is almost all male. And esports and um, a lot of games in China are heavily um, male dominated. Um, there are female gamers, and there are, you know, discussions about female gamers liking different types of games that always emerge. Um, but, you know, it is, I think, this type of nostalgia. Um, that I'm describing is something that's evoked more strongly in a lot of the young men because it's something that they experienced where some of the females did not have this experience, but there are many females who also did. Um, in terms of the class question, um, this actually is something that I explain in more depth in my dissertation and something that may have not come out as much in the talk today. Um, but when I talked about 
the esports and the way it gets figured by many young people as a sort of upward socioeconomic mobility in terms of skill building and the way it's equipping them with skills for real life. These were actually the the young people who were talking about this were actually college students at Tongji University in Shanghai, and they were very successful. And a number of them have gone on to go to graduate school and everything like that. So they actually um, were fairly, uh, fairly privileged. And um, and I also came across, you know, young people who came from families that were very wealthy who were playing. The massively multiplayer online role-playing game World of Warcraft, and talked about how it could be an escape. Um, but uh, to get back to this, um, I think there is a sense in which um, there's a tendency for young people within college to want to talk about games in a way that distinguishes them from what they consider to be sort of a more lower-class form of gaming, which is this like escapist. Sense of gaming that you know we're playing the game and we have nothing better to do with our lives, and I think that's where this whole um, this whole discussion of games as skill building, you know, emerges from, and it's also, as I mentioned, backed up by government and media rhetoric that want to kind of promote, you know, the healthy sort of gaming that leads to the ideal citizenry, the person with the skills we want, as opposed to the person who's just escaping into this fantasy world. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It was really horrible of me to dangle it out there. Um, Sky won, and um, and actually uh, another aspect of the match that happened afterward is they had another um, you know beautiful song afterwards, and he gave this big speech, and it was you know a really fitting culmination to his career. Although it was only the third place, and he wanted to win the championship, of course. <laughs> So part of my interest is uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious from what you say about the fact that nostalgia pays. I mean, you know, somebody there, there's somebody who is who's, who's making profit, um, uh, and you know, there's nothing new in entertainment. I mean, this is, this is uh, a principle that's been widely acknowledged. So could you say a little more about the financial structure? You know. Gaming, uh, the game parlors, uh, how this, uh, what this financial structure around this activity is, and who is, uh, is, is there a, is there a deliberate uh, policy or calculation to play into nostalgia? Uh, I mean, this would be a, a reasonable thing to do if mm -hmm. you're trying to make a profit. Uh, so, just say a little more about the financial. Um, well, in terms of the financial aspect. I don't know. I, I have to be honest that this isn't something that I've gone into in, in great detail. Um, you know, I, I don't think, from what I know, that there's any sort of um, official directive to play into nostalgia and to make it profitable. But I do. But you know, I, I should say that this film that I was talking about that was going out of its way to try and use this nostalgia to promote a new game. Was actually uh, building off of another viral video. It's almost 
um, copying it, to be honest, a viral video that had just come out earlier that year. And so it was a sort of very viral marketing approach because they just picked it up, having seen the success of that one video, and said, oh, we can do the same thing. You know, that video focused on Michael Jackson as the source of nostalgia. Um, but, you know, seeing that and being able to pick up on that was sort of a viral marketing campaign. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I have to be honest that, that the financial side of things is not something that I've gone into in great depth. So, yes, perhaps something for me to look into more in the future. So, I was wondering a little bit more about the kind of technological context that surrounds all of these issues. And I think uh, in games especially, since the, the content is so tied to the platform as kind of a technological thing, um, you have this inevitable cycle of, of obsolescence and supersession, and that gives game players the sense that they, they're, you know, that the course of the medium exists in these little windows that open and exist for a while and close. And that, you know, as each each of those historical windows closes, something's lost because you, you lose that platform and the particular kind of distribution mode, the particular technical constraints that resulted in a certain kind of right. art being made on that platform. <coughs> so the sense is, you know, if we're leaving the 16-bit era, we're losing 16-bit games, and I have to keep that in my heart because they're not like that. And so I, I think there's a couple of recent trends that are complicating that kind of technical supersession march. One being, as, as Jim was indicating, kind of games that play to nostalgia, games like Minecraft or you know, Tiny Tower that <coughs> use an older visual style for nostalgic purposes. But also, there's a trend on the hardware side to where it's sort of doing processing over the cloud so that you keep the same machine and somewhere on a faraway server is getting better at processing year over year. Um, there's also kind of moves to get modular components that you can swap out in the console and put into it to give it new life. And I think, I mean, intuitively, it seems like that would lower the stakes. That would, that would make it seem as though these windows are either going to be open longer than they used to be, or perhaps will enter a window that never closes. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's going to have significant effects in terms of the, the kind of stakes of what's going to be lost as time moves on? Well, um, you know, hmm, I really don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. Um, it's a very interesting question. And um, I do think uh, that, you know, in terms of the games that these young people were playing, I, I think that from what I can see, it wasn't only the, the notion that this game was, you know, closing out a window, but the fact that, you know, they were experiencing these games during these sort of intense years that were building up to the college entrance exam and such, and so it was closely tied to that. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is that the, uh, for example, the company that was marketing this other game using this nostalgic film was marketing a completely different type of game that most likely wouldn't have appealed to the gamers that they were trying to market it to, right? It wasn't this game that they were promoting, this MMO, was not nostalgic in any way. It wasn't trying to build upon a sort of nostalgic um, platform and recreate the sort of King of Fighters platform or anything like that. Um, and so um, I think that they were just playing upon this general sort of structure of feeling, this general sense that was within China. And I. I don't know. Your question is very good. It's one that I'm going to have to think about more. And to be honest, I just don't know exactly um, how to come back at that well, yet. One of, one of the ways I, I wonder, it makes me think, I mean, it's certainly true that sort of the nostalgia for the lost game 
becomes less so when all these emulators come out and now you can you can play them, you know? And now, right, my kids are playing Pac-Man and uh, the other ones, right? The Space Invaders, which weren't that great, really. <laughs> but, but still, there, there's, it, it's almost like a, an invented nostalgia, almost, that it, it, it changes the dynamics. But I guess one of the things I would wonder is, to what extent is this a nostalgia for the game versus a nostalgia for the place and time which right. then gets channeled to the game? I mean, I, I think of this, I'm more experienced, I think of this in music, right? Where music, and, and now that all these songs that maybe were inaccessible for a while, now it's all accessible. Uh, and so when I had, oh, I used to have that mixtape, well, now I actually can, I can find it. You know, it, it, it sort of lowers the value in some ways of me owning that tape, and yet to have, you know, so now it has to be, well, on cassette tape it was different, you know, or on, on vinyl it's different. Like, you, it's almost like you have to invent uh, sort of a new way of thinking. So that's, you know, I, I wonder, you know, it becomes an interesting question to me then, how much is it about these closed spaces, for example, the closed internet cafes, um, or the game, you know, and, and it, does that get sort of disentangled or, or re-entangled because now actually can play the game, and King of Fighters is probably will come back, right, right if it's right. not back already. Well, yeah, and they, and they were in the film, they're able to recreate it, they're able to download it to a computer and just play it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I, I, I do think that that makes sense. You know, I think that it is, what I'm trying to argue here is, is not that it's necessarily about the, 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 the content or the, the platform that it's played on, but more about this sort of social experience and then about sort of a longing, uh, a return to that time and place in which they had these sort of hopeful, youthful dreams. Um, so I guess, yeah, my notion isn't so closely tied to the platform um, or the game itself. Okay. I, I, I should first really come back to you. Louder, louder. For people who don't know Chris Weaver's class, you should probably just uh, describe it. It's a um, business of gaming. Is that? I mean, absolutely. That's def that is definitely part of my argument. And I think that, you know, you saw people, um, I mean, people talked about spending Chinese New Year in the game and setting off fireworks in the game and taking pictures. And, um, you know, the director of War of Internet Addiction says quite clearly that, you know, think about it, you know, if we had money to travel, would we be at home playing the game? And maybe yes, maybe no. But I think that for a lot of people, especially people who were going into the game and taking pictures, it was a simulated travel. 
You know, and what's interesting is one of the experiences in my field work um, with three of the young people that I was working with, we actually took a trip um, to a, a, a tourist destination in China, and it was their, it was actually their first trip um, on their own um, without their parents or anything like that. It was the first time they ever went anywhere, and I think they did it largely because they wanted to show the foreigner a good time, <laughs> and so they're like, oh, we're going to take you on this trip, you know, and of course, you know, nobody's playing games then, there's, there's no technology is touched, and then there was this moment when we got back to the campus, um, you know, and I was talking with them again, and I was saying, well, what, what would you normally be doing here, like, what activities are you involved in, and they just went back, and they ran, and they got their laptops, and they pull out, and they start playing Warcraft 3, and so, you know, I think that there is a sense in which games do stand in for a physical, a lack of the ability to have physical mobility. I was really interested in where the discourses from the government came from about games as sort of productive spaces or places mm -hmm. to learn job skills. Like, where, yeah. where did it come from? Um. <laughs> Well, they don't, they don't really go as far as to say that it's, it's job skills, but they do, they do promote eSports. And I, I think that, um, to be honest, the place it came from was a competition uh, with South Korea, which is really South Korea is the home of eSports. They really built a reputation for eSports. They're the ones who started the World Cyber Games, for example. And, um, you know, there, there is this sense of... Um, games can be a form of soft power within China. The notion that um, they're, they're quite aware, the Chinese government, while they're very concerned about internet addiction and um, the potential harmful effects of gaming, they're also quite aware of the fact that they're sitting on a population of the largest, you know, number of, in, you know, internet gamers, digital gamers in the world. And so they're trying to promote both the development of domestic games um, with domestic Chinese narratives that perhaps will go abroad, but they're also trying to compete with countries like South Korea who already have an established reputation in esports. And at the World Cyber Games when I was there, um, the, uh, <laughs> my screen. Um, when I was at the World Cyber Games, um, I went to the press conference, and in the opening press conference, one of the big discussions was how China was on track to overtake South Korea in terms of the esports market. Um, and so I think that is where this desire to promote esports issues from. Um, and I, I think that that is largely the reason why they back it, while at the same time putting a lot of restrictions on gamers who want to play other kinds of games um, that aren't considered to be as healthy. Oh. More questions? Uh, yeah, let's get TL in first, then we'll come back to Jane. Yeah. Oh, a really interesting talk. Um, so I want to ask this question, but I know that you, I know you work natively in the language, so we're getting translations, and of course I'm hearing those translations through my own cultural context, so mm -hmm. with all those caveats. I'm really struck by how sort of tender and sentimental at least the translated versions were. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about sort of forms of masculinity and gaming, and is that kind of a feel of language unique to gaming, unique to, to 
Yeah, so in other words, it's not evoking this sort of like macho-ness or something that you're expecting, but... Well, yeah, you know, when I, when I first started doing um, research as a master's student, I was coming across a lot of um, what are called emotion stories, ganqing, ganqing gushi, and it was like, uh, it is an aspect, I think, of the Chinese language internet, um, that you come across a lot of stories that are sort of an emotional outpouring, um, not only about games, but about a lot of different things. Um, and I think that that sort of emotional sense, that emotional nature of language is very present on the Chinese language internet. And it is really, I know it's, it's very melodramatic, and I think, you know, everybody um, sort of takes it with a grain of salt. Like nobody, let's put it that way, say that nobody was talking that way to me in their interviews. You know, um, so it, it was more a literary form that existed on the internet. Jin, you want to get something else? Uh, I, Go ahead, oh, you first, you first. Um, I, I, I was very intrigued by Ian's practice about the method. So I have uh, two questions, one for myself and one for Ian, uh, over both of them. So participant observation, and you, you asked where is there, right? And where are, well, my question is, how many of the informants involved in your work um, were found um, uh, in the virtual community. I, I like, did I find the participants in the virtual community? Uh, if, you, if you just, every single one of them uh, was found in the internet cafe, did you get anybody in the virtual community? I have not recruited people from the virtual community, though I did try. I actually, did not, I did not okay. recruit from within the virtual community. Uh, if, if there are informants that you would contact in the virtual communities, then the question is not just where is there, but the boundless nature of there, right? Mm -hmm. And where do you draw the line? And that is relevant to the second question that I have. I've always wondered about ethnography uh, in comparison to political science. When ethnographers do surveys vis-a-vis -vis political scientists, doing surveys in a country, as huge as China. Mm -hmm. And I once was really stunned when I had a conversation with a poli-sci person. He said, well, you know, in China, to make valid uh, conclusions or generalizations, you have to have at least 7,000 valid samples. Now, I know for ethnographers and, and also for marketing, you know, for, for the marketing communities, that is not the case. But I'm just curious about when do you know enough is enough, you know, when do you know Informants, how many of the informants are enough? I think this is a question we addressed to Ethnography. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I take a shot you at that? So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, part of my method, uh, which, which Ian did discuss, is the, a notion called situational analysis, uh, which tries to um, take you know, these notions of different points of view, different perspectives, and triangulate them, right, to get a sense of 
the positionality of knowledge and how all knowledge is situated and you know who has the power to make knowledge about whom from where whatnot and so to take you know the government rhetoric the media rhetoric and then personal stories from individuals and to triangulate these to see what we get um, but also I would say that you know I don't make I don't try to make claims that this is all of China I certainly don't believe that that's completely representational and I also know that you know this is happening with Shanghai within Shanghai though I would say that many of the young people I'm dealing with are actually coming from all parts of China because they're college students and such um, but that said I, th I think that's why I'm drawn to these film clips that I used because those do give a sense of you know something that's representational because you know war of internet internet addiction had hundreds of millions of views hundreds of millions and then um, this other film was well into the the millions and so I think that using that and then adding the individual stories the individual voices to flesh this out and to see how it happens within individual lives can be the way that ethnography can intervene without being representational of all China right yeah, I, I think it's true, and, and it, it's a fair criticism of ethnography that it might not be perfectly representational. Oh, it's not, it's my curiosity. No, <laughs> no, it's, it, but I, I think it's fair, and it, it's, it's, you know, I think it, it's maybe even a good time for, a good idea for anthropologists to acknowledge that, you know, and say that's not actually what we're after, uh, but that, the, I mean, the experience of it is to say you trade a kind of representational overview for uh, a more nuanced depth. I mean, that's the way it's experienced, I think. Yeah, actually, uh, my question was, when did you know you could stop? Right, so, so one of the ways I, I think, do you want to, do you have an answer? No, go ahead, go ahead. All I, was, the one of the, I don't know, some, I forget who said this, but some anthropologist was saying once that uh, I know I've reached, I've talked to enough people when I stop hearing new things. Uh, you know, when it keeps, the, at first you start your field work and everything's just so much more complicated than it was in your proposal. Uh, <laughs> you know, you had it all worked out, you have a few categories, here were the issues you were going to look at, you start talking with people and you realize, oh wait a minute, you know, it, it's every, there's all these different people and all these different experiences, and it starts out as a big mess. But then things, you start to hear similar things over and over, and, and then you start to say, okay, now I can see some of the categories to put these different comments in, although they seem different at some level, I, in fact they fall into these boxes and then you really start to hear things over and over, and then you feel have this deja vu that you've already had this conversation, and you realize it's with somebody else. And that's to me, that's you say, okay, I probably pretty much have it. You know, of course, there's there could be some things I've missed, and there's more nuance you can always dig into. But uh, there is that experience of you keep hearing the same kinds of things over and over, and that's when you know. Um, and so it's. It's qualitative, like the research itself. Uh, you know, it's not it's not a number. You know, it, it could be. Uh, well, it's true we don't get up to seven thousand people ever. I'd say, uh, but but still, you know, if you if you as long as you kind of are open minded, you try to get a range of people. You think about class. You think about gender. You think about age differences. You think about the different categories of whatever it is you're looking at. Then you start to things start to fall into place. Um, so it's it's not a perfect rule, but but it is something you experience. I think it, once you once you've done enough field work, um, and and 
And even, and I thought you were going to ask a different question about the, the virtual and how do you know that people are saying, you know, that whole thing. Um, but one of the funny experiences I had with all these musicians, right, these professional musicians, is sometimes I'd ask them the same question a couple times. Um, and they would actually give a different answer, you know, each time. And then you realize that, in fact, even these interviews and these conversations, they're performative. You know, they're about the moment and, and who they're interacting with and how they're feeling, and they're tired of telling the old story, so they're going to tell a new story. And so there's always that kind of yeah. messiness of even our own identities and who we are and our own personal histories that have to be mixed in as well. But so then you have to sort of go a little higher level of generality. Yeah, Jim, what would you throw um, on that? So I was, uh, I'm, I'm impressed with that image you started off with, with all the people in this vast audience. And I'm wondering, um, what the different classes, categories of people who are engaging in games uh, that you're talking about? Is, is, is this a, a, a cross-section through, uh, from, uh, is it mainly urban-centered, college exam-taking uh, uh, students? Uh, or, I mean, can you give us a little sense? Um, yes, well, I did, it is sort of, a broad group that I have brought together. Um, and, you know, when I went about, um, I don't want to say collecting, but when I went around finding informants to participate in this study, I actually um, worked through a number of different sort of points of contact. And so uh, one person I uh, was working with was actually somebody who uh, was involved in market research for games and who was uh, very adamant that in telling me that, you know, because I'd been talking to college students so far, I hadn't talked to real gamers. You know, they didn't count as real gamers because they were in college. And there, but there was this sense um, within, you know, the way he talked about games that a lot of the, the real gamers are sort of lower class um, individuals. And, you know, the same sense is evoked in a lot of the way in which young people who used to play in the internet cafes talked about the fact that they would never go back to them now because they consider them dirty, sort of lower class spaces. Um, but so um, there were individuals that I talked to who hadn't gone to college, who had dropped out of high school. They were brought in uh, by this person who wanted to, to introduce me to real gamers. And um, so what I try to do is to use the points of contact, my sort of main informants who are introducing me to different gamers, um, to realize that I was being offered different lenses onto different communities of gamers, you know, and to not have um, sort of the sense of getting everybody's story, but that, you know, getting some different stories from different people who were trying to formulate for me what the sense of a real gamer in China was.
does this narrative stretch that you're looking at and, and where does it stop? Mm-hmm. So I think when I first started formulating this question it was uh, does the narrative extend into other media? It does it appear in music? Um, I'd just be curious to know because your examples were largely online um, and then there's also this tension between the online examples and the very place-based examples of the group of people you're talking with and also the internet cafes. So I guess where would you say that this narrative stops? What are some of the, the boundaries as a way of thinking about how this fits into the, into the bigger picture of either technological history or cultural history? Well, yes, it does make sense. And, you know, I have to say that the the project started out um, in a way that the thing I want to do is actually give a very intimate portrait of a number of young people's lives who I've managed to become very close to. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, well, you know, I try to use the, the films and the online um, material to sort of give it more of a sense and to stretch it further. Um, but in the end, I think um, when, it, when it comes down to it, it's really about a very, being a very close look at certain individuals and the way in which various sort of discourses that are present in the media and the government policy are sort of refracted through their own experience. And that's how I would really um, present it. And I think that there's value in that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I guess just to follow up on that, would you say that would there be examples in music or other aspects of mm. music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the punk, punk, and, and yeah. A lot of uh, high school kids under the pressure of uh, taking the entrance examination, mm-hmm. they, they resorted to, you know, Lincoln Park, definitely, but that was their favorite when they were in college under that kind of pressure. But once they entered college successfully, their musical taste changed. They became much more eclectic. Mm-hmm. However, I would say there's a difference between punk music and games, and I wonder if your discourse, you could say a little bit more about the role-playing type of things. Mm-hmm. Because with music, there's nothing like that, right? So mm-hmm. their, their relationship with punk music is somehow different from their relationship with certain kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if role-playing enhanced their emotional attachment, their, their sense of no, no, uh, nostalgia. Maybe they when you, when you become a young adult, there's less room for you to play, to, 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 to multiply your goals. Uh, so I'm just wondering, because yeah. it doesn't stop. Well, it, the discourse of nostalgia extends to other genres. Yeah. This was a little bit my question, too. Like, Do we have that same valence of language in other leisure domains, or is it something, mm-hmm. is it something unique? To, to the gaming space. Like, mm. Thank you for doing a much better okay. job of my question. It was trying to sort of see if that okay. travels more broadly. Um, yes, I think all of this, you're right that the, tra- the language does travel more broadly and that there, there certainly are other um, media that, you know, and, and other objects um, that young people's sort of nostalgia is filtered through and the same sort of discussions. I mean, there are websites like Eclective. Um, eclectic websites uh, that are devoted to young people who came of age in the 80s and there's like all different objects and all different things that they're nostalgic for um, you know that get written about Um, and so it's not it isn't just the game Um, but uh, I do think that there is a sense in which um, gaming is 
perhaps a more dominant experience for many uh, young people because of the size of the population of gamers and the extent to which internet cafes really took over the city landscape in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, you really couldn't walk a few feet without running into an internet cafe in the cities, and they were affordable. They were, you know, they were everywhere. So it was just, it was a sense that, you know, it just was natural to go to these these spaces. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I do think I do agree that you know we can find this nostalgia in in other in other media, and um, you know it's it's funny that that um, it's been a thought in my mind of whether or not I would move into to trying to look at these these things in other forms of media as well and not just stick with games. Um, but yes, I, I think it, it is very much there um, in, in other places as well. And I wonder about the role playing. I, mean, I was thinking on the one oh. hand, role playing games or first person shooters, they're very different than music. Uh, but then I'm not so sure. You know, then I think, you know, if, when I'm going to the hip hop clubs and dressing up in my hip hop clothes, I'm a little bit role-playing, I suppose, for the minute, and saying, you know, how do you know the punk rockers? Because they look a certain way, and, you know, they're, they're avatars <coughs> that they happen to be walking around in, but you know. But Well, yeah, sorry, I forgot to address mm -hmm. the, the bit about the massively multiplayer uh, online role-playing games, and, and I do think, you know, that there is, there is a sense in which it does invite um, more fantasy um, and I that's why I also see the RPGs as perhaps a location in which um, people can cultivate a sense that's actually critical of you know what they're they find lacking in their real lives and that's why I, I found War of Internet Addiction that film to be so evocative because it did move it from fantasy into critique um, and I, I think that is yeah something that that is a little bit different perhaps. Okay. Abe, did you have something? Yeah. And I'm sorry, and we'll get you up here too. Abe's in the I was really uh, intrigued by the uh, blurb on the cover of Sky's uh, <laughs> book, right? And it was the kind of a, a nice reduction of that kind of classic rags to riches, right? Flipping noodles, having millions of fans. Um, it struck me because it resonated with the narrative that you hear in traditional American sports all the time, right? About it being an avenue for people to have to find social and of course, the, the risk with that and one of the problems with that is that um, it's not a real avenue for most of the people, but it's a, it's a startlingly small minority. And, and I imagine it's, it's very similar to competitive gaming, too. And so I was wondering if, with the people that you talked to, was it a, was it a hope that was, was real, or was it a hope that was um, colored by a realistic understanding of the fact that the... the the reality is a small minority are actually going to be able to gain enough social mobility to, to move. And, and just to follow up on that, you know, one of the risks too is that, you know, that kind of message and that kind of narrative can kind of blind you to the other structures that are putting you in, in the social stratification that you're in in the first place. And so I'm wondering if you noticed that as well. Yes, well, um, I will say that many of the young people who were playing quote-unquote esports or who were playing uh, Warcraft 3 um, were not aspiring in, by any means to be, um, to be the next Sky. They weren't trying to play, um, you know, professionally. But I think they did. Um, I gave the example of the young person who actually had a, a chance to talk to Sky because I think they did 
holds him up as a, as a role model more genu generally for, you know, perhaps having skills that, that are necessary to be successful generally in life. Um, but I also would share an anecdote. I, I did spend some time in a vocational school in China observing an eSports elective that they had begun, um, which was purportedly to train people in eSports um, because it's, it's, after all, it's a profession. So, you know, it's a vocation that you could <laughs> go into. But then um, what actually happened on the ground um, when you got into the classroom was that everybody was just playing and nobody was actually really discussing the strategy. And so when I talked to professional gamers, well, what do you need to become a professional gamer, they always talked about the difference between, you know, playing socially and playing for fun and then actually translating that into, you know, a profession and a skill. Please. My name is Alexandra, I'm a student on the research. And my question is a little out of your scope. You probably speak loud because the people in the back of your chair. My question is a little bit out of the scope of your research, but I'm really curious to ask while you were in China doing your research, did you see any sort of counter movement to address the gaming issue in the youth culture in China? Because when, when I was in China, I worked with a lot of Chinese college students, and I hear of all these stories of how their classmates head straight to the, the internet bars after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a large part of my research um, that I didn't talk about today is actually concerned with the discourse of internet addiction in China and um, the way in which um, games are considered to be something completely harmful to young people. And there are absolutely so many efforts um, to curtail young people's sort of immersion in the games. Like the, the war of internet addiction is really all about the fact that the government had been censoring the game and holding up the actual expansion of it. And part of the reason is because uh, World of Warcraft is considered to be a particularly harmful game. And I actually, in my research, teased out sort of some of the reasons why World of Warcraft in particular is so hated, having to do mostly with the origin um, coming from the U.S. and ba being based on a Norse mythology and therefore not promoting sort of a Chinese cultural concept of, you know, what mythology should be. Like they actually talk about a negative image of a dragon in World of Warcraft and how the Chinese people should be proud of the dragon, right? Um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes on. It's a very complicated um, discourse, the discourse of internet addiction and the concerns. I mean, there are young people who are put in internet addiction camps and who are given shock therapy. This is also what's going on in World of Internet Addiction is a critique of that. Um, so there's a lot going on. and. Um, it's, I, I can't say enough about it. I have a lot, I have a lot that I could say about it now. Um, but suffice it to say that it is another part of my research. Um, and I do have a paper on um, the internet addiction moral panic, in ch what I call the moral panic in China, uh, if you're interested in checking it out. Yeah. I wanted to, to bring up a, a question, sort of where you, where you ended the, the talk, and this question of whether these games can be a space for utopia and critique and political action of some sort, or are they these vehicles for cruel optimism, right, and holding out this carrot in front of people just to keep them 
sort of in their place and, and, and escape valve or you, you know it's an interesting kind of question because I, I, I see the cruel optimism side of it but also like the idea of pursuing utopia <laughs> or something better anyway or at least something marginally better and it does seem certainly seeing the war on internet addiction for example I mean it's an interesting kind of argument being made in a form that a lot of people are watching as well and I can imagine for people who've been told by their parents that you shouldn't be wasting all your time on the games, that here is a nice rebuttal, I suppose, and the fact of all of these views, in some ways, reassurance that you're not alone uh, mm -hmm. in, in seeking out this kind of rebuttal. Um, and so I guess I, you know, when I hear the things like it's cruel optimism and people are being duped and these fantasy worlds are just, uh, sort of reintegrating people into the neoliberal government structure that you know holds out the promise of uh, autonomy when in fact it just crushes our dreams eventually. The, the, you can always say that, and there's there's always some truth to it. I mean, we are all going to die. You know, I mean, there's <laughs> ways in which there is a, a bad ending. You know, uh, to all of this, but but. Uh, I guess that's all I want to hear. Where do you <laughs> do? I mean, if you, had to, if you had to pick a side. Well, well yeah, I mean, I, I think I ended with that because it is really um, sort of the question that's central to my work that I'm still, I'm still continuing to grapple with. But I do think that there is a, a way in which fantasy can, can be subversive and can be, um, can be a, a form of critique and something that is important. You know, I, I try to develop a notion of the, the game as a site of alternative mobility in allowing for the idea that perhaps, you know, these lifestyles that are promoted within the game are, you know, valid, a valid source of, you know, gaining success and satisfaction. And a lot of, you know, the sort of narrative within China is about, you know, what determines a successful career is, of course, you know, um, it's a, it's basically, it's a discourse. It's socially created, of course. So we have to consider the, the opportunities for other lifestyles to emerge and the way in which these subcultures can also, you know, have a sort of um, subversive presence. I, I think that's a possibility that I'm, that I'm playing with. There was another question here, and then we can do it. We can do a couple, a couple more questions, and then there's also reception afterwards too, which we can continue the conversation. But please, first over here. Ivana Varka. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, Ivana Varka. Uh, uh, business scholar, CMS. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, my question is almost uh, already answered. But uh, actually, when you talk about uh, the internet, about the fact that Chinese government is aware of uh, the internet and cyber games addiction. Uh, I wonder if you know any case where the Chinese government censored those uh, cyber games and what about the contents of uh, cyber games? What about the reason why? So you're saying when the government censored the games, like what was the content of the censorship? Um, so for example, with World of Warcraft, the things that were censored were things such as the presence of skeletons in the game. They were considered unharmonious because of the showing of bones. Um, but, but the thing about the censorship um, is that I, I don't think, I actually think, you know, that ultimately the government really doesn't care about whether or not these games show bones and whether or not, you know, this is something that's, um, 
you know, considered offensive in Chinese culture, but it's actually, um, I would say, a bit of a ploy um, to allow, uh, to be protectionist with the gaming market and to try and promote domestic games over foreign games. So, um, you know, the, the whole debacle surrounding World of Warcraft and the censorship of it, I think, was a stall tactic because it is so successful within China. It's the most successful game. And I think that the Chinese government, you know, wants to promote the domestic games industry, and um, that's part of the way in which they're achieving it. So well, maybe this will be the last question, and we can continue at our, uh, at our reception. Please. So first a comment about censorship. I think Chinese government has limited amount of resources. When we, you know, to censor and when in U.S. media really like to focus on, um, you know, how Chinese government censor, but really they censor selectively. And, you know, different, mm. uh, I've heard that um, censorship is a lot less strict in the book, um, book industry compared to television or, you know, so, so it's not, you know, I, I feel, um, it's almost a ideological connection whenever you think of, you know, China, Chinese government, think of one right, censor. Right, right. You know, censorship existed in, in American media to course. a different extent. But, um, oh, so my, uh, my question is about, um, actually build upon Jean and uh, T.L.'s question about gender. Um, in, how, in gender in relation to the upward social mobility that you're talking about, because... Um, I, from your image, um, you know, uh, of the large um, gaming contest and all the participants seem to be male. And um, in China and the U.S., both, uh, you know, cultures have seen, uh, you know, there's certain masculinity attached to gaming. Um, but then that reminds me of this whole new debate in literature about um, um, man overall as a gender is failing in society. And um, I don't know if you know the debate about the end of men um, started at Atlantic Journal last year. From uh, Hannah okay. this whole debate about how um, men are not, succeed, not succeeding in modern society, um, and uh, they they became frustrated. And uh, women are breaking all those glass ceilings. So um, men, uh, you know, they basically constantly have to deal with their challenged masculinity. I wonder if that threatened masculinity is related to them retreating to the gaming field. And, um, an, and also, I have heard of, from many different sources, people, you know, like, um, you know, uncles and aunts compa complaining about their children, um, boys, you know, not really going out to look for jobs, but just stay trapped in their room and play video games. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's the lack of upward mobility of games related to gender? Um, well, it is an interesting question, and um, I think that in terms of this threatened masculinity, the thing that comes to mind is uh, a new um, sort of internet meme that I've been looking into, um, which is the diaosu, the, the loser, um, sort of, I mean, so um, the there's a a group of young men, I mean, primarily young men, they, there's also a female version of the diaosu, but it started out as a, a thing about men. And it's a stereotype that talks about these um, young men who are sort of uh, short, 
fat and ugly as, as opposed to the Gao Shui, as opposed to the tall, tall, rich, and handsome, right? And they, um, they basically are depicted as these guys who can't talk to women and can't, um, you know, achieve anything. So they sit at home playing games and, you know, do things like that. And somebody, when I was talking to somebody at the World Cyber Games, they said, yeah, everyone here is Diosa. Everyone here is Diosa. So um, I think that there is a little bit of a sense of, of this, maybe what you're talking about, um, that's, that's present on at least the web in China, that this, this sense of, um, you know, the sort of loser male. But like I said, there's also the female component of it that's out there too. So I think that it's not necessarily restricted to one gender. But. Ending on a note of failed, unsuccessful men. Uh, can we continue the conversation downstairs? Do you have any comment on that? One quick question. One quick question. Okay. when you were in China? I'm sorry? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, first of all, the government has it set up so that you need a Shenzhenzhen, you need an ID to play the game, you need a Chinese ID. I could not register with my passport or any ID number that I had. I had to have a Chinese ID. Um, that said, I did um, coerce one of my um, research assistants into registering an account on my behalf so that we could go in and play around a little bit. Um, so basically, I stole his ID to, to get onto the game. Um, but I have, I have to be honest that I don't uh, play these games in, in depth. Um, and I, yeah, I, I sort of determined not to do that because I was specifically trying to look across a, a cross-section of many different games. And so to immerse myself in one would take, take away the ability to have a sort of more broad perspective on games in general. Great. Well, thank you very much, Marcella. Thank you. Thank you all for the wonderful questions. Uh, the reception is down on the third floor, and we go down to the